Father, I pray once again that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the great questions that the church has asked through the centuries in a variety of ways is how does God accomplish his purposes in the world? How does God bring the world to salvation? How does God communicate his message of salvation? How does God help people understand what he has come to do and wish for every person that has ever lived? It is obviously an answer that is multifaceted. And it's, a, it's an answer that we sometimes think is, is specifically related to theologians as they try to work out these things. But the reality is, it's not just something that is important to theologians because it has a bearing on how God's people live our lives. I mean, if we're a part of God's purposes and God's plans, then the way in which God accomplishes those purposes has a bearing on what we do, how we live, how we think. And I think there's something of that idea here in John 12. As this chapter begins, Jesus goes to Bethany outside of Jerusalem and spends some time with his close friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And then we have the story of Palm Sunday and the procession, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then we come to this event that we, uh, that we read this morning. Right before the, where we started in the passage in verse 19, we find that the religious leaders are getting very frustrated with Jesus. Because all the people are running after Jesus and leaving them. Jesus has become the popular presence in Jerusalem, not them. And you sense in their response heightened levels of jealousy. Everybody's running after Jesus. What about us? We all know that feeling, right? When, when people that we've been close to, people we've connected to, start giving us the impression that they're much more interested in being connected to others. And it's hard to deal with that. And sometimes it creates behavior in us that we would not have done, but jealousy gets under us, under our skin, and gets into us. And you can see that in religious leaders. And that just adds to their, their animosity toward Jesus. And in the midst of all of that, there are some people that John simply refers to as Greeks who show up. We have no background about them. We have no idea where they come from. We have no idea who they are. They are who people he calls Greeks. And they come to Philip, and one of the disciples, they, and they say, we'd like to see Jesus. And Philip goes to Andrew and says, hey, these guys want to see Jesus. What do you think? They're sort of triaging people who get close, are able to get close to Jesus. We have no other information about what happens from that moment on, but what we do find is that Jesus gives, Jesus' response to seemingly this request that Jesus, these people, these Greeks want to see you, we get an odd response from Jesus. He doesn't say anything about them wanting to see him. What he says is, now is the time that for, the, for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. What? What does that possibly have to do with people wanting to see him? I, I think the connecting point is the word glory. 
Because glory, in a, in a sense, is really talking about the nature of, of who he is. To enter into his glory is to reveal himself fully, without any barriers, without any, anything hiding, without anything in between. He's saying, now they're gonna, they want to see me, and I know they mean they'd like to have a conversation with me, but I'm going to take their word. They want to see me. Let me. I will show them who I am. And he says, to show them who I am is going to involve my death. Because it's in his death that we see the clearest evidence of who Jesus is. In his death, we see the nature of Jesus. In his death, we see the character of Jesus. In his death, we see the essence of who Jesus is as he goes to the cross. What's fascinating is that Jesus connects his glory, stepping into his glory, with the glory of the Father as well. He says, I'm going to go to the cross. And then he says, Father, I want you to be glorified. And somehow, there is a connection between Jesus going to the cross and revealing who he is, and Jesus going to the cross and revealing who the Father is. Sometimes in our minds, we have this perspective that, well, there are things about Jesus that really aren't about the being that we call God. There have been people through the centuries who have said there's the God of Jesus and then there's the God of the Old Testament and they're very, very different. Well, that comes from a really poor reading of both the New and the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, you want to see who I am? This is who I am. But I, you need to understand that when you see me, you see the Father. Donald Bailey once wrote that one of the most fascinating things about the history of theological thought is that when the early Christians look back and, and ponder this, this horrific event, they see the redeeming love of God. Not just the love of Jesus, but the love of God. It is the nature of God that is revealed here. And we see in, in these words of Jesus the hints at the Trinity and the connection that the two of them have. That Jesus is not one thing and, and God the Father is another thing. They are one. And when we see Jesus, we see the Father. And the love that we see of, in Jesus is the love of the Father. And the essence and the nature of Jesus is the essence and the nature of the Father. And Satan is continually trying to, to skew our view of God. It is one of the most, most, most debilitating parts of sin entering the world is that now we have a skewed, twisted, hidden view of who God is. In fact, one of the, one of the, the reasons Jesus comes is to reveal to us who God is because we have such a warped view of God. And our sin continues to warp that view and the evil one is continually trying to twist the reality of the nature of who God is. And Jesus says, here's the clearest view of God you can have, and it's the cross. It's the cross. And one writer says, God is no greater than he is in this humiliation. God is no more glorified than he is in this self-surrender. Self-surrender. 
God is no more powerful than he is in this helplessness. That doesn't diminish the power of God. It doesn't mean, we're not saying God is not the, the creator of all things. God is not the almighty God. God is not the ruler over all things. It is simply saying we have to understand the power of God is understood in the nature of God as love and grace and compassion. This is who God is. This is how God, Jesus reveals him to us. And it's not just the fact that Jesus goes to the cross. It's the motivation of Jesus going to the cross. It would be one thing for Jesus to go begrudgingly, unwillingly. It, it's sort of like the, when you look back at some of the, the, the Old Testament sacrifices. In, in the nations all around them, when the pagans come and they worship, they practice their sacrifices, how they feel about their gods and how they even engage with the sacrifices really doesn't matter. They don't have to like doing it. They don't have to want to do it. They just have to do it the right way. But Yahweh keeps telling Israel, it's not enough to do it the right way. You have to want to do it. Your heart matters. And we see that in Jesus. Jesus does not go to the cross as a helpless victim. He could have gotten out of it. I mean, in part of what he says here is, should I pray, Father, I, I don't take me away from this? No, this is why I came. This is my heart. This is expressing the nature of who we are as Father, Son, and Spirit. He could have escaped, but he doesn't because he loves sinners. People like you and me and the whole world. There's a, there's a song that we sometimes sing that I, li I love the song. It's, it's how deep the Father's love for us. And it has a great theology, great words, but there is a line in it that, that I, I would change. The line in the song says, it was my sin that held him there. I think it would be better to say it was his love that held him there. It's not as if my sin causes, is, is what's holding Jesus on the cross and he really doesn't want to be there, but my sin is keeping him there. It's his love. He goes willingly, lovingly to the cross. As one writer says, when we look at the cross, we, the focus of the cross is not ultimately death. It is love. It's the love of God. And it doesn't diminish the reality, again, it doesn't diminish the reality of the power of God. It, what we find in the cross is that the power of God is leading God to love. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus goes willingly to the cross, that it's about love. All of Jesus' life is about his love drawing people to him. That's his existence. We see it over and over and over again.
Now, not everyone who encounters Jesus wants to be drawn to him. The, in the passage right after what, what, where we stopped reading, we find that despite all the miraculous signs, John tells us that he quotes Isaiah and says there are people who don't want to hear. There are people who don't want to see. There are people who don't want to be drawn to Jesus. They are hard-hearted. And we often think people being hard-hearted are people sort of out there. You know, they're the people who have obviously rejected God. They're the people who have obviously have want nothing to do with God. But the evil one's continual temptation is for you and me to become hard-hearted. When God says, I want to change your life, we are tempted to say, but I don't want my life to change. When he says, I want to set you free, we're tempted to say, well, I'm not really sure I'm in bondage. Or what we often say is, okay, you can change me, but I want you to change me the way I want you to change me. I want to be set free the way I want to be set free. I want to hang on to as much of myself as I can rather than letting it go. And sometimes it's about the nature of the kingdom. You know, sometimes... We want the kingdom to be power. We want the kingdom to be coercion. We want the kingdom to be possessions and things that we accumulate and things that we do and all the things of this world. That's what we want the kingdom to be about. Sometimes we don't want the kingdom to be forgiveness. Sometimes we don't want the kingdom to be self-sacrifice. Sometimes we don't want the kingdom to be denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. And yet, that's the nature of the kingdom. That has huge bearing on how we as people of God bear witness to God in this world. Because the temptation is to to think that we can change the world by just having more power, by by exerting more coercion, by, by forcing people to do what we would like for them to do, what we believe is right. But it's difficult to keep making that argument in light of the cross. And yet, it, it's hard to let go of that. We look all around us and we see this is how you get things done in the world. If someone has power, the way you get things done is to get more power than they have. If, if, you, if influence is the way to get things done, then you have to have more influence than, the people who, than other people. If accomplishments are how you get things done, then we have to accomplish more than other people. And, and in and of itself, I mean, power that God gives us is a gift from him. And accomplishments are a wonderful gift. And influence is a wonderful gift. But all of those things have to be understood and lived out in the light of the cross. Not in the way most people think about it. 
No one can be forced into the kingdom. We've seen that through the history of the church. And it never works very well. Because the Christian faith is not about saying, not forcing people into the kingdom. It is about helping people be drawn into the kingdom. Helping them understand the kingdom, the truth of Jesus. Helping them to see and to experience and to have their eyes opened and to understand the nature of who God is and to be drawn to it. One writer says, when you look at the Gospels, you find a, an incident or two of which, because of injustice, Jesus drives people out of the temple. But we don't have any instances recorded in the Gospel of Jesus ever driving anyone into the temple. We draw them. And it doesn't diminish the truth, not for a second. We are about the truth, and we are about what is right and just and good. It is simply being people who communicate that and live that out in the spirit of the cross. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to me. As followers of Jesus, in whatever way God calls us, when we take up our cross... The Spirit will work in us to draw people to Jesus. But you know, that kind of mindset, that kind of perspective is only going to be a reality for us. It only makes sense if we understand the cross in the light of the resurrection. I know during the season of Lent, we are... We, we, we're, we're trying to focus on the cross and the passion of Christ and we don't want to run to Easter too quickly. But the reality is, as Jesus goes to the cross, he is thinking about the resurrection. Even here in this passage, in verse 24, he says, unless a kernel of wheat falls in the ground and dies, so it has to die, but when it dies, what happens? It creates life. It creates plants and growth and bears fruit. The dying is not the end. The dying is the process to the life. And we can live this way. We can live in, in the light of the cross. We can take up our cross and follow him because we know there is more to come. It's always in the light of the resurrection. That's our hope. That's our faith. And when we believe that, then we don't have to grasp for things of this earth. We don't have to, to follow the same strategies that everybody else follows. We can actually follow the way of the cross and it is the and understand and learn and realize that it's the way of life. And the evil one's always fighting us about that. Always trying to convince us. And Jesus says here, it's not just that life is coming, but life is coming because ultimately the evil one is going to be defeated. And what's fascinating to me is that the defeat of the evil one takes place not just in the resurrection, but in the cross. 
He says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the time for the judgment of God to come on the evil one. There is a sense in which that when I read through the gospel stories, and particularly these, the, the stories that tell us about the last weeks of Jesus' life, we, we find sort of this culmination of what the evil one's been trying to do ever since Jesus entered the earth, and that is to prevent him from doing what God has brought him, called him to do, what he has come to accomplish. And so you, you have all these moments in Jesus' life when the evil one is trying either to take his life or to turn him away or to keep him from doing it. And then you get to this week, and there's a sense in which you, that the evil one has said, I finally have won. Now we're going to take his life. And I almost have this sense in, that it's in that moment, as this week moves forward, and as the evil one is celebrating what he has accomplished, all of a sudden it occurs to him what he's not realized before, that in a sense he has played into God's hand. Michael Card, years ago, wrote a song titled, This Must Be the Lamb, and it begins, On a gray April morning, as a chilling wind blew, a thousand dark promises were about to come true. As Satan stood trembling, knowing now he had lost, as the lamb took his first steps on the way to the cross. How do we, how do we, how are we agents of God for defeating the work of the evil one in this world? How do we overcome the hatred the evil one sows in this world? Not by exhibiting more hatred, but by living out the love of Christ. How, do we, how are we agents of God for overcoming the power of the evil one in this world? Not by grasping for more power, but by surrendering to the power of God through the Holy Spirit, through the cross. That's how we will, that's how we will draw people to Jesus. And it, it's sort of like a magnet. A magnet that, that draws things to it. Here's the interesting thing about a magnet. Is that a mag, some things are attracted to a magnet. Some things are repelled by a magnet. Some things have really new, do neither. They just sort of sit there in the presence of a magnet. And the difference isn't that the magnet is different for each of those objects. What makes the difference is the objects are different. And our calling in the world is, is to be a magnet that draws people to Jesus. And to be such that, that people are drawn to him. We can't do anything about whether people are open or interested, whether, what their hearts are like. All we can do is try to help people see Jesus. Help people experience Jesus. Help people be drawn to Jesus. It's hard to say what, what encounters you may have, maybe even today or this week, 
or in the weeks to come. But I'm convinced that God is continually putting us into circumstances where we have the opportunity to help people see Jesus. It may be a discussion about uh, the, the, the truth of the gospel. It may be the way we live out life with people who are going through difficult things. I don't know. But I do know that God will accomplish his purposes in the world through his spirit at work in his people. That we might be agents for drawing people to Jesus. Father, we thank you for this great privilege and responsibility you've given us. Help us to have hearts that are open to be who you've called us to be. Whatever way you call us to that, that we might, through your Spirit, draw people to Jesus. We ask this through Christ. Amen.